you fail and question ourselves. But then you just just got to go back and say, right, what do I control? You know, I control how hard do I work each day, mm-hmm. and I control being here now. And then, then God's got a plan, so I'll, I'll accept that whatever it is. Hi, everybody. Super excited to share my conversation with Villanova head basketball coach Jay Wright, who is most well known for winning the 2016 and 2018 Men's Basketball Championship. This podcast is also a special tribute to my dad, Tony Hayden, who passed away peacefully on October 9th at the age of 74 and was a lifelong Philadelphia basketball sports fan. So I interviewed Coach Wright on Wednesday, September 26th, and that night I gave my dad a sneak preview to the interview. My dad was one of the toughest critics of all time, and I'm happy to report that he loved every second of my conversation with Coach Wright. I hope you guys do too. So quick background on Coach Wright. He is married to a wonderful wife named Patty, and they have three children. Coach was born and raised right outside of Philadelphia in Bucks County, where he went to Council Rock High School and then went on to Bucknell University. He had a marketing job right out of college in Philadelphia before he took his first coaching job in 1984 at the University of Rochester. He then went on to be an assistant at Drexel, then Villanova, then University of Nevada, before being named head coach at Hofstra University in 1994, and then in 2001, he was named head coach of Villanova. Although Coach Wright has had an incredible amount of success, it's important to remember that he started from the very bottom. Just like anyone else, he has experienced a tremendous amount of failure and setbacks throughout his career and has had to use grit, perseverance, and a strong positive attitude to get to where he is today. What I absolutely love the most about my conversation with Coach Wright is that even with all of his success, he is still the most humble and kindest person ever. Hope you guys enjoy. So, Coach Wright, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Incredibly grateful I have this opportunity to share your story with the listeners. And I wanted to start out by talking about what it means to be humble in life, given that I think you are the very best role model on what it means to be humble. And I was fortunate enough to witness this humbleness that resides in you this past summer on the golf range with my two good friends, Catherine Elliott and Deirdre Moran Barnes. And I don't know if you know this, but they're um, both of them are phenomenal golfers. Catherine played at Penn and Deirdre at Bucknell, where you went. And um, I just tag along and try not to embarrass myself. But (laughs) we were having a great time and you walked on and I froze and they both knew I'd been chasing you for the podcast. So they pushed me to go outside my comfort zone and approach you about it, which I eventually did. And you said yes. So I had to give them a big shout out for um, for helping me going outside my comfort zone. Um, But what really resonated. I could tell they were good golfers. All three of you. No, not me. I was watching the swings. There, there were some good swings out there, man. I was very impressed. Oh, thank you. No, they're they're very good. But um, but what really resonated with all three of us from that day on the golf range was how humble you were. You spoke to us for probably over fifteen minutes, and not once did you talk about yourself, but instead focused all the attention on us and made us feel really significant. So it was a cool experience, and since then has inspired us to always be humble. Um. Okay. So segueing, you know, that story, I wanted to talk about what you told the players um, in the locker room after the 2016 and 2018 championship game. You wrote about it a lot in your in your book, but would love for you to kind of touch on, you know, the theme of humbleness and what you told them. Well, it's something we we talk about all year, Steph. So when and we talk about it after every game. So in 16, in the national the national championship game was was no different. As a matter of fact, it was probably 
more important when you get on that stage and and everyone's telling you uh, how good you are and, and you, you're getting a lot of attention. It's probably even more important to remain grounded and humble our whole time in Houston and then our, the entire time in San Antonio for the Final Four in 18. One of our biggest challenges as a team was to to stay grounded and stay humble because when you get to a Final Four, mm. you wouldn't believe, you really can't believe the magnitude, the media, and the attention. Just to give an example, when we got to Houston, we, we stayed in a hotel that might have been a 50-story hotel, and they had our players' images on the entire side of the hotel mm-hmm. as we drove up. Wow. You know, so you're a 19, 20-year-old kid, and you look at a 50-story building with your with your likeness uh, you know, <laughs> plastered on that building that everyone you know, within miles can see. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just not normal, you know, and and so you have to just remember that you're you, you know you're just a just a, a good young man that's a good basketball player and 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 you're a part of something bigger than yourself and and that's what we talked about after the game in Houston was let's let's make sure that we remember there were a lot of great players and great coaches that came before us that really set the foundation for us to be able to do this mm. it's it's not just what we did tonight you know we we use a, a saying all the time that the, uh, the stone cutter and you know it, it goes like this that uh, you can watch a stone cutter tapping at his rock and he might tap at it a thousand times before that that rock breaks in two you know, it wasn't that final blow but it was all the thousands of taps that came before that and, and it's the same way with our team. And we talked about it that night. It wasn't just our team that night. It was all the great players that had come before us that built a tradition of Villanova that allowed us to work out in the facilities that we do, that, that taught us uh, how to play and, and taught us how to be humble. Mm-hmm. And that all that, all that had as much to do with us winning that game as, as what we did that night. Right. And um, the, the last thing that we share with them is that just to make sure that that this this isn't your greatest accomplishment in life. Mm-hmm. You know, that just winning a basketball game, it's, it's about, you know, what kind of man you are, what kind of husband you are, what kind of father you become. That's really going to be more important. You know, you don't want to be showing everybody your ring your whole life. Mm-hmm. You want to be you want to be living on, 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 on what your actions are. So I thought it was a good moment, moment for us all. Just keep that into perspective. And we basically did the same thing again in 18. Right. Um, I love that. That was my favorite part of the book. Um, you know, what you told the players after the 2016 championship game. So backing up a little bit, would love for you to provide the listeners with a little bit of background on where you grew up and when you became passionate about Philadelphia, because most of my listeners are from Philadelphia. So I thought that would be cool for you to touch on that. Well, I, I grew up like, you know, I think we, most of us all found out when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. I think a lot of us found out how much we had the same Sunday afternoon routines, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you could go to church, the games were at one o'clock in the afternoon. You, come back and you watch the game and, and then you have dinner as a family and talk about the game and you know and then get ready for your week right um, it's so funny when the Eagles won the Super Bowl you, you heard everybody talking about that how the fans mm-hmm. get together and watch the games on Sundays you know and, um, but I did grow up you know in Bucks County 
um, outside of Philadelphia and um, just loved all the Philadelphia teams. I remember going to Connie Mack Stadium. My dad took me, took me there and I remember they had Cookie Rojas and Bobby Wine and Dick Allen and Chris Short. Great. That was my, you know, initial memories of the Phillies. I even remember seeing uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, actually when he was Lou Alcindor, play for the Milwaukee Bucks against the Sixers in a playoff game. I think that might have been the first um, basketball game, college, I mean, pro game I went to. And then, especially going to the Palestra as mm. a kid, going to watch doubleheaders. Uh, um, I had a, a family friend that actually worked in the ticket office of Villanova. And so we would get our tickets from Villanova. And no one in you know, my family went to college, so we didn't have any connection to any team except we were getting our tickets from Villanova, so we had a special loyalty mm-hmm. um, there. But that, of all the experiences, I loved them all. You know, I, I thought I wanted to be a pro football player, pro want to play for the Eagles, Phillies, Sixers, mm-hmm. but I don't think anything probably impacted me as much as going to those games right. at the Palestra. I, uh, I think as I got a little older, it became more uh, important for me to play for a big five team than it did to, you know, play professionally in any sport. Right. And that was, that was the impact that the, the big five used to have. It was so big in the city and it was so big in college basketball. The guys really grew up dreaming of playing for a big five school. I'm not even thinking about playing in the NBA, right. but playing for a big five school was good enough. Uh, and that was that unique aura in the sixties and seventies of the big five. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, and I know that you went off and you played at Bucknell, which is pretty cool. And then after college, you graduated and you worked in Philadelphia with the Philadelphia Stars. And for listeners that don't know, that was a United States Football League. And you worked in the marketing department where you also met your wife, I believe, Patty. Um, yeah. So I read that you were really happy at the job, but then the opportunity rose to go and coach at Rochester which was ultimately the beginning of your coaching career. So what made you take that leap to take that position? I really, like every player, and it's, it's really absurd in my, in my uh, perspective, but I really thought I was going to be an NBA player, <laughs> which is crazy. I was, so, I was so far from being an NBA player, but... Um, it's something that sticks in my mind when I coach today that, um, you know, I was much further from being an NBA player than any of the guys I coach, mm-hmm. but yet I still thought I was. And it just always reminds me, um, I shouldn't say I thought I was, I thought I could play against those guys. Okay. And, but you don't realize when you're in college, that that doesn't make you a problem. <laughs> they want somebody that's going to, be better than those guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I always remember with my guys, no matter how much I know about their ability, they still have a confidence and a dream that they can play against anybody. And that, that's important. You never want to never want to squelch that confidence or that dream because that's really what makes you makes you compete. Right. Um, but I thought I was going to be a pro. <laughs> um, when I finished at Bucknell, you know, I realized, okay, I'm probably not going to be. And I was going to go work for a great guy named Eddie Burke at Drexel University as a graduate assistant. Mm-hmm. And um, he he, co- he recruited me out of high school 
with another local coach, Bill McFadden from Archbishop Wood, mm-hmm. who was a legendary high school coach. And uh, then he went to coach at Drexel. And I really wanted to go there. I wasn't good enough to play at the big five schools. But they, I wanted to play in Philly, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go there. And they got a they got a better player, and, and he was better, a kid from Roman Catholic. So I went to Bucknell, but Eddie Burke was such a nice guy. He stayed in touch with me, and he, he offered me a graduate assistantship. But right at the end of the summer, I, I just couldn't think about going and taking classes again. I was so happy to graduate and be done taking classes. I couldn't think about taking classes anymore. Right. So I wanted to go to work. I, I, I thought I might want to coach, but I definitely didn't want to take graduate classes. Right. So so I, I got this job with the Stars, and there was another friend who was coaching at Drexel at the time named Pat Flannery. And he got offered a job at University of Rochester, which was actually more money than he was making at Drexel, which is funny because that was a Division three job. Right. Was Division one. And he thought about taking it because he, he, he was getting married, and he just couldn't make the move to Division three. So he told the guy, Mike Near, the coach at Rochester, look, I can't take this job. And I think he felt a little guilty. Right. He said, I, I got a great young guy for you that you like. And he just kind of threw me into it. And I met with Mike Near and, uh, and got the job. And I was on that job at University of Rochester for about uh, about a day or two, and I just knew, like, I, it just, it, it was like the heavens opening up for me. I just loved it. Yeah. I, I just knew I loved it. I knew it's what I wanted to do. And I really feel blessed to, to have figured out at a young age, given that opportunity, like, I didn't know I would love it that much until I got the job. Right. And, it's you know, it's something I try to tell, you know, our, our guys, our young guys, like, you know, you don't, have to take a job knowing it's your it's your dream job you know, you try it you know you you might try it. like i went to fill up stars i love that I, but when i took the job at rochester i knew this this is what i wanted to do yeah like i i could have done the marketing job with the stars i could have done that and been happy right but when i got to rochester i knew i found my passion yeah i and, love and that I knew that's what i was gonna do and if you can find that passion you're really lucky Right. A, lot, a lot of people just don't get the. It's not that they don't have the passions; it's that they don't get the opportunity to 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 find a place where they can do it for a living. Right. I love that. And then I also read that while you were coach at Rochester during the off season is when you would be a counselor at the Villanova summer basketball camps, and would love for you to touch on how you showed your value there because. Correct me if I'm wrong, but those summer basketball camps were an incredible opportunity for you to be exposed to the then Villanova coaches, such as Steve Lapis and Coach Mass. Um, and obviously, you definitely showed that you were a potential asset because they eventually hired you as an assistant. So can you touch on how you showed your value um, through those camps? Yeah, I, I um, you know, I didn't know I was showing my value. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I just, I just... I just uh, loved the job. I loved it so much. You know, it's basketball camp. We were going, we would go, you know, eight o'clock in the morning all day. We would do individual work with kids, uh, you know, on the court, on the courts after camp was over until the lights went out at 11. And then we would go from 11 at night. Coach Massimino would bring in these great coaches like John Chaney and Steve Fisher and Dale Brown. He'd bring in all these great coaches to lecture to us. So I'd sit up 
listen to these coaches talk, take notes until one in the morning, and then hang out with all the other coaches there and have some beers until three in the morning <laughs> talking basketball. Right. And, and to me, it was just I, I was I was in basketball heaven. So you know, you would work the camp all day, but then they would say at night, "Hey, we need some coaches to volunteer and work on these individual stations where you teach kids." Uh, that, that are really motivated, you know, at the end of the day, they want to do extra work. We stay and work with them. Well, I loved it. You know, I, I, I just thought, Hey, I get to coach some more and good motivated players. Let's go do it. Right. And, um, I remember, you know, being out there at night and again, I didn't know this at the time, but coach Massimino would walk around and look at who were the coach. He would have like 125 coaches working at the camp. So he would go around and say, all right, who are the coaches that volunteer to do this late at night, right? And then, uh, you know, who was the guys that are really motivated, you know? And um, he, you know, was walking around watching one uh, one night, and I remember just a simple thing. I was doing a, a, a drill with some kids, and he just walked by and just said, hey, you're going to be a good kid. <laughs> and that was like... You know, to get that from Rolly Massimino was huge. Right. And it was very inspiring. And didn't he just, um, he had just won the championship, right? So that he was, it, yeah. He had just won the national championship. Okay. Yeah. So that's really cool, yeah. Before. Right. That was, that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to skip around a little bit because um, we don't have too much time. But um, but I know that you coached at Hofstra as a head coach from 1994 to 2001. And um, I read that you always trusted in God's plan. So it was a rare opportunity to come back to Philadelphia, but the stars aligned and you have the opportunity to be the head coach of Villanova starting in 2001. So how would you encourage others to always remember to remain patient and trust God's plan? Because I think people, like I'm 30, and we always want things to happen instantaneously. So how would you encourage others to sort of slow down and kind of trust the process? Yeah, one other part of that stuff that's really important, and um, you know, a, a, a lot of it is there is there. Is, I think there's a plan for all of us, mm-hmm. and, and, and our and the best we can do um, is, is 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 to give our best effort wherever we are. Mm-hmm. And and I think the best chance you have of getting another job or moving up is just do a great job where you are. Because mm-hmm. I, I think people talk, you know, people, you know, the, they watch people. I, I watch now all the time. I watch young assistants. I watch young head coaches. And, you know, and, and it, it, sometimes I learn from them. You know, I, I, I sometimes I admire them. But, you know, you'll say, hey, I saw this coach. He's really good. And so when people are looking to hire someone, they'll, they'll remember that, you know. Mm-hmm. So just, just being – we use the term be here now. Mm. And I also tell all our guys, I did the same thing as whatever job you get, make that your dream job. Right. You know, take that job. Like I'm going to be here forever and I'm going to commit to being the best I can be here. And then, you know, whatever God's plan is, it is, you know, we, we, we took the job at Hofstra, um, really because we were at UNLV, honestly, and I wanted to get, I just wanted to get back East. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get, I just wanted to get back to, close to family, and it wasn't a great job when we took it, but I was so appreciative to have it, you know, and I just said, hey, this if I'm here the rest of my career, great. I'll, I'm going to make the best of it, and right. and, uh, and I really loved it, and even 
and we didn't we really didn't want to leave there you know mm-hmm. we never thought the Villanova job would open ever right. you can look at you can look at the history of Villanova there's, there's only been about five or six coaches in the entire history nobody ever leaves right so we were we were happy to stay there um, but I, I think for for anybody you know that looking at you know their future is just be here now to take the job that you're doing right now and just be the best that you can be every day mm-hmm. and that even though it seems short-sighted in reality it's going to give you your best chance to move or for someone to recognize you right because if you're if, you, if you're half in and you always think about where you're going to be next you're going to do a mediocre job right and when you do a mediocre job you're not you're not really going to have great opportunities mm-hmm. But if you're all in, you, you, you want to force yourself to be in a position where I love my job and I got offered this other great job and I got a really tough decision to make. Right. That, that's, that's, you want to put yourself in that position. Yeah. I love that. I actually just interviewed um, Pat Croce um, last Friday and he, he said a lot of the same things you said, such as being in the present moment and working as hard as you can at the, the job you're given. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, it's easy to say, but. It's hard to do, and you, uh, you know, you look around sometimes, look at other people, look at other jobs, and you got to keep fighting that that urge because you know we we were at UN, we were at Villanova. I went with Coach Massimino to UNLV, and, and probably a lesson I learned the hard way. But when we were at Villanova, UNLV was winning national championships, and we thought, wow, if you go there, they have no problems there, and everything's perfect there. Mm-hmm. And then we went to UNLV and we realized, you know what? There's a lot of things about Villanova that were better than UNLV. Right. And UNLV had unique problems that we could never even think about. So it, it always it always resonated with me when I would when I was at Hofstra or even at Villanova and think about other jobs. I think, you know what? That looks great, but I know from experience they have their challenges too. Right. And and I and I love where I am. And so there's no there's no reason to mess with happy unless something just blows me away. Exactly. I love that. Um, so I think a lot of people put my guest on pedestals because of all the success they have had. But as you know, we're all human we all, and we all face adversity and failure. So would you be able to tell us um, a story about a time that you might have failed in your career, but then you persevered and you know how it made you stronger? Oh, well, enough time for them all. But <laughs> I, I mean, really, all of us, we... If you look at anybody, um, you know, I, I just showed my team a, a video of, of Kobe Bryant when in his first playoff series, he shot four air balls to lose the game against the Utah Jazz for, in his rookie year in the playoffs. And everybody, I mean, he's the great, one of the greatest of all time. We've all failed and we will continue to. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's, it's all about how you handle that failure. You know, do you? Do you learn from it? Do you take responsibility for your part in it? Mm-hmm. Do you move on with confidence and and, and uh, no fa- no fear of failure? You know when when we went to um, when we went to Hofstra, uh, you know I wanted to do everything just like Coach Massimino. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget we were like zero four, zero five, and, and uh, <laughs> Coach Mass came to one of our games. 
and I had a young assistant, Brett Gunning, drove him back to the airport. And on the way back, he said, does Jay have any idea what he's doing? <laughs> and, and, you know, it just, I was, you know, I was trying to be him, you know, right. and, and, and I wasn't being myself. And, you know, I, I learned, I learned that also, so you, you got to figure out your way, what, you know, what is the best way for you to be authentic? Right. Uh, you know, at, at Villanova, we, we, uh, in the early years, I mean, we, we lost, we lost a lot. And, and um, you know, there, there were a lot of times that, I mean, we, we lost, I remember playing Penn, University of Pennsylvania, uh, at the Wells Parker Center. It was our home game. And their student section had to sit way up top in like the third level. And, University of Pennsylvania, Ivory School was beating us by like 20 or 25. And the, the, the students who were way up in the third section held up a sign and said, what's the score down there? <laughs> and it was, just a, it was just a really ironic way of saying, you know, you got the Wells Fargo Center, you got us way up here, right. we're an Ivy League school, and we're trouncing you. Right. You know? And at that time, I remember thinking, you know, we have so far to go, so far to go, and you think like, you question yourself, like, can we really do it? So we're all there. We're all there where we failed. We questioned ourselves. But then you just, just got to go back and say, right, what do I control? You know, I control how hard do I work each day. Mm-hmm. And I control being here now. And then and God's got a plan. So I'll, I'll accept that, whatever it is. Yeah. Is it true that you used to play It's a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong during your days <laughs> of Hofstra when things were hard? <laughs> <laughs> things were so bad in the early years of Hofstra. They were so bad. Everybody was so down. We, we, we lost for four years in a row. And uh, in like our second or third year, I just felt like everybody in the program was so down. And it looked so bleak um, that I used to play that song to myself in the car. Mm-hmm. And and so I mean, I one guy said, you know what? I, you know what? It, it, I do it for myself. Let me just play it for the guys on the team you see and I made them listen to it and they looked at me like it, it made it worse like, <laughs> right, this is the worst song I ever heard to these guys to these young guys and our coaches totally lost it making us listen to this so I think it actually made them think you know things are even worse than I thought right oh my gosh um, I love you telling these stories because I think people forget that even, you know, you won two national championships, but it took you so long to get there. So it really, it resonates with me to always remember to be patient and again, yeah. trust God's plan. Um, but one thing I talk about a lot of my podcast is the art of listening. So I've told the story before, but there was a CEO of a company that kept writing down DNT on his yellow notepad. So one of the employees after the meeting saw him and asked what it meant. And it said, it reminds him. Do not talk. So this way he can focus on listening to the other team members. So um, I read a story in your book about the 2016 championship game. And I think it was one of your players, Daniel, asked you to talk asked to talk to the team before you did, which wasn't protocol. But you listened and agreed. So can you talk about that story a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And, and one of the sayings that uh, I always um, tell our team is – God gave you two ears and one mouth. You know, mm-hmm. so you should listen twice as much as you talk. Mm-hmm. And really, um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of older coaches that I have, um, you know, learned from a lot of coaches. And um, and a lot of them I stay in touch with. And I think 
one of the best compliments I received and really took to heart was from an old high school coach, a guy named Frank Romeo, coached on Long Island um, at, at um, Hot Park High School for a long, long time. And he just said to me, like, like three or four years ago, he just said to me, uh, he said, you know what? You were always a really good listener. Yeah. And, and I never really thought of that, but I, I realized that I probably learned the most listening. You know, I, I like to read. I read mm-hmm. as much as I can, but I really like talking to people and asking them questions and listening. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've learned the most from people I've met and just listening to them talk. I just did a, um, uh, a, a, a talk at Citibank in New York City with with their uh, one of their presidents. Mm-hmm. And before we did the talk, we did a podcast like mm-hmm. this. But we were in we were in the room together, and another person was interviewing the two of us. And the guy, the guy's answers were so good. I was I was the interviewee in the podcast, but I was taking notes <laughs> on his answers. Because, you know, whoever you're with, you can learn from. And mm-hmm. at that time, the time you're mentioning, Daniel Chefu was a fourth-year senior who I knew was well-ingrained in our culture. Mm-hmm. And, I knew, and I trusted implicitly, and you don't do this with all your players until they've been with you for a while, that there's nothing on his mind. Mm-hmm except getting us to play the best we can. Right. There's no individual uh, honors that he's looking for. He, he's the type of kid. There's, you know, he's a leader on our team. He's unselfish. He, he's not trying to get his own points. Like, he only cares about the team. Mm-hmm. And I saw him so impassioned before he walked into the locker room. He said, Coach, stay out here. I got this. And he's, and he's a really um, – He's a, he's a really passionate, sometimes overly competitive guy. Mm. And my assistants looked at me like, no way, don't, don't let him do it. Right. But I just felt like, he, I just felt like at that time, like, you know what, we need, we need a different voice here. And they need to listen to somebody else. And he just, we, but we did listen, speaking of us, we, we kept our ear to the door, even though we didn't <laughs> listen to everything he said. And he did a great job. And, and I was able to go into the locker room and just say to the team, hey, Daniel's right. You know, we, we got to get back to playing Villanova basketball. It's not about any adjustments. It's that we we got to just execute the game plan we came in with, and, and we got to do what we do, not everybody try to individually, uh, you know, try to get us there individually. Guys weren't going for individual accolades. They were just trying to individually will us to victory mm-hmm. instead of sticking to our team's game plan. Mm-hmm. I love that. So one question I want to ask you is about your wife, Patty, because you talk about her a lot in the book and how, you know, she's been with you since the beginning. So what sort of role does she play um, in your life? She, she's the biggest, um, she's the biggest part of our success. No one, no one knows that, but um, we were just recently, it's it probably, the, you know, we all, we all get a lot. There's so many awards out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you, when you win a national championship, you get them. Uh, but the, probably the most meaningful one is the one we just, Patty and I just received in Washington, D.C. Was, it's the John and Nell Wooden Award. And the award is, a, is really given to a, a couple, you know, a coaching couple. Mm-hmm. And, um, she, you know, I'm overly competitive. I think most coaches are. 
Um, if you're if you're just if you're just average a- average in your competitiveness, you're probably not going to be that successful. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm overly competitive, probably um, border on being a workaholic, and, and that if left alone, that probably would have led me to my demise. But with Patty, she's always keeping me in perspective. You know, like where if, if, again, if left alone, I would just work all the time because mm-hmm. I love it. Right. You know, she, where she makes, even though as much as I love my family and I know it's important to me, she makes me spend time with the family. I know I've gotten better, but there's even one time early in our career, I yelled, there was a fan behind our bench kept yelling at me and yelling at our defense was terrible. And he was right. He was, the thing mm-hmm. was, he was right. And I turned around and told him to shut up. And when I came home that night, she made me call him and apologize. <laughs> That's so, awesome. And I called this season ticket holder. The guy said, I can't believe you're calling me to apologize. I said, well, I can't believe I am either, but my wife's making me do it. <laughs> and, but she was right. You know, there, there's, yeah. there's no reason. There's no reason to do that. So she's just my moral compass. And she's always keeping a perspective, I think, that actually makes me more effective as a coach than if I was left on my own. Right. I love that. That's awesome. And, um, so, um, one more question too. What advice would you give to your 30 year old self? I just turned 31, but I always love asking <laughs> the people what advice they would give. Um, you know, I probably would say now is what I said about is, uh, you know, don't be so maniacal, like trust, trust your instincts. Um, you know, take time with your family, take time, uh, for your health, um, you know, as I said, most of us that are are driven and that are listening to podcasts like this to try to improve, we we should trust our trust our work ethic. Okay. You know, we, everyone's always telling us, "You got to do more. You got to do more." Uh, you know, I, now if if you were somebody that wasn't working hard, I would say, "Okay, you got to work hard," but. Most people that are really driven do work hard, and you really need to keep a better perspective. I think I became a much better coach when Patty's messages kind of sank in, mm-hmm. and I and I had a better perspective. I wasn't as competitive. I wasn't as maniacal. Okay. Um, I, I think a lot of us could probably, at 30, if we had a better perspective, a little bit more wisdom, be even more successful than uh, if we're just pure workaholics. Right. I love that. Um, yeah, I can't say I followed that. But <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I, I do think it would have worked better. Right. Um, well, Coach, I think that's it. I think we covered everything. So thank you so much for taking the time for this. That was really fun. I really, really appreciate it. Glad to do it, kiddo. Hi, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to High Five Success Stories. To learn more about the podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at High Five Success. Or on Facebook, you can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Hayden. Or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephhayden.com. And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.